Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If the teachings and audios you find here at BethEmmanuel.org are a blessing to you, please consider supporting Beth Emanuel with a gift or become a member of our virtual congregation by becoming a regular contributor. To learn how to contribute, click on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Some time ago, we spent a little bit of, a little, a little bit of time with Clement of Rome as he appeared in the introduction to the pseudepigraphical Clementine homilies, where he was moping around with uncertainty, uh, asking Clement's big questions. You know, why, uh, you know, when I die, am I, go- am I going to continue to exist? Will there be any remembrance of me? Do I have a soul? Is there uh, life after death? Is there a reason for the creation? And um, so on and so forth. Remember Clement's big questions, were, is what we were discussing. And, and Clement wondered about the creation and what existed before and what will exist after. And he wondered if if the gods exist or not, and if there's such a thing as the undying human spirit, remember, uh, and and uh, out of body entities, he was he was looking for some evidence of this, and he wondered he he especially wondered if there's any reward for virtue, and any punishment uh, for vice, and on and on his questions went like this, and in addition to Clement's uh, big questions. I would like to uh, introduce a few uh, more basic philosophical questions that haunt us, you know, that maybe put it in our language rather than the uh, high language of uh, that Greek text. But here's a good one. Why are we here? <laughs> you know, that's at some point, every, everyone sort of, that it has occurred. Wait a second. Why are we here? Uh, why am I here? What are we supposed to accomplish? Why do we suffer? We maybe don't think about this until we start to, but once we start to, then it's like, wait, whoa, what's going on here? Why do bad things happen to us? Why do bad things happen? Uh, how are we supposed to cope with difficulties? This is something that, you know, you experience... You don't go through life without experiencing obstacles and difficulties, small and big, and sometimes we make the small ones bigger than they are, but they're difficulties nonetheless, and eventually we are all dealing with formidable obstacles. What's the point to this, and what's the point to all of this if, if in the end, if, the fun, if at, the, at the end of the day, as they say, <laughs> if the end of your days, we all just die? Yeah? That's kind of macabre. Most of the time, human beings try to avoid life's unresolved philosophical questions by dealing with... Because, you know what? The the fact is, usually we don't have time to think about those kind of big questions because we're so distracted with the more immediate problems. See if any of these resonate with you. How do I deal with financial problems? I got bills. How do I deal with employment problems? I need a job. How do I deal with health problems? I have uh, ailments. How do I deal with physical problems, relationship problems, marital problems, parenting problems, my emotional problems? I mean, it's, just, it's depressing. Life is problematic. You know what I mean? It's challenging, at least. And if you think about it, it's also confusing. <laughs> So maybe it's best not to think about it. And a lot of us get through life without thinking about it. But the questions that we wrestle with center around these personal 
agonies. So the bereaved person says, why did this have to happen to my loved one? And the disabled person says, why, why do I have to be handicapped? And the, and the average person, the, the average woman is saying, why couldn't I be more physically attractive as she compares herself with other women? And the average man feels his own inadequacies in his own ways. And then he's saying, why do I have to struggle paying bills when people all around me are living in extravagance? I'd like one of those. And, and if people are really honest, we might be even asking more basic questions, even deeper, like, why don't people like me? Or, why am I so lonely? Or, going even deeper, peeling the onion deeper, why am I such a bitter person? The more personal human questions that we ask, the more it starts to seem that there are no answers to the human existence. But our teacher, Rabbi Yeshua of Nazareth, does offer an answer to the big questions, like Clement's big questions, and to the small questions, like our own personal self-absorbed miseries. The answer that he offers is simple. It's a single word. It's so obvious that, you know, it's staring you right in the face. It's a concept that, that's so simple, and yet at the same time, it requires a lifetime to discipline, uh, of discipline to master it. The answer is faith. Faith. Yes. Faith. Faith in God. Faith in God. What is faith? Our master's chief disciple, Simon Peter, said that God gave the Messiah... He says it in these words. He says, For the sake of you who through Yeshua are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, here's the reason why, so that your faith and hope are in God. In other words, God gave us Yeshua so that we should believe in God. And because of Yeshua, our faith and our hope are in God. Where does, uh, where, where, where does faith in, in Yeshua fit in then? If he's like, well, I hope is in God. He gave us Yeshua. Our master makes this explicit. He says, whoever believes in me does not believe in me. You ever notice that? Someone like one of those Dr. Seuss sayings of Yeshua. Whoever believes in me does not believe in me, but believes in the one who sent me. Faith in God is not just a system of beliefs. It's not just consent to a creed or a set of theological constructs. Faith in God means walking out the way of faith. It's an entire discipline of life, of course. It's similar. I like to compare it to an athlete's dedication to his particular sport. Always is this athlete training. Always is he practicing Always is he studying ways to improve his game, to get the advantage and to get the edge, to hone this skill and come a little bit closer. The way of faith is a life of trust, belief, confidence, optimism, and certainty. Certainty in God, but not just certainty in God, but certainty in God's goodness. It accepts that the otherwise unseen and unknown things revealed 
by God's prophets and by his son and by the apostles are true and certain. The holy author of the book of Hebrews provides a very short summary statement to this regard when he writes in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith, properly defined, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. What are things hoped for? Things hoped for refers to the promises of God. That's what we're hoping for. Because God makes promises to his people through his prophets. These promises are recorded in the Bible. So faith requires us to believe in these promises that we're hoping for, these things hoped for. So that means believing in God's promises about the great redemption of Israel and the coming of the Messiah and the reward in the hereafter and the resurrection of the dead and the messianic era and the world to come, the promises of the prophets. Things not seen. Remember, the conviction of things not seen. So there's, a, there's that assurance of things hoped for. And things not seen. Things not seen refer to things that you can't see. Yes. What are some things that you can't see? You cannot see spiritual realities such as, such as the existence of God. Where's God? Show me. You know, if you ever do that when you're a kid, you're just like, okay, where is he? <laughs> the gig is up. Show him. <laughs> Show me God. Where's this human spirit? Where is your soul? Where did you, where do you keep that? Uh, What's that look like? Oh, or angels and demons and these heavenly realities that are described as a part of the economy of, uh, of existence in the scripture. Unseen things, though the wind blows, no one sees it, right? We feel it, we hear it, we don't see it. So we believe in the existence of things unseen and their real presence intersecting our world and our Scope of reality. So a faith that has the assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of the things not seen offers answers to the big questions like those posed by Clement. And it offers certain answers to the basic philosophical questions of human existence. And it offers both answers and better yet, solutions to our personal questions about coping with the anxieties and perplexities of everyday life. And as a disciple of Yeshua of Nazareth, as disciples together, we have embarked on a life of faith together. People tend to think of faith as simply believing in God. You know, believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe in God. Believe in the Bible. You, know, you got it, right? But faith is certainly encompassing more than simply believing in God's existence. As James, the brother of the Master, said, faith is more than just believing because he said even the demons believe and they shudder at the thought. In early Jew Jewish Christianity, faith was something that you practiced. It was something that you did. Real faith had real results in the way that you lived your life. There's those who talk about faith and those who practice faith. I spoke about wings. 
but you flew. Real faith transforms our perception of life and elevates our expectation of living. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, we learned the story of Caleb and Joshua. I told you this is my favorite favorite verse in the Torah. When, When Hashem says, my servant Caleb has a different spirit. What was Caleb's different spirit? It was faith that Caleb approached life through the eyes of faith and he saw the giants. He saw the same giants as the other spies, Joshua and Caleb, saw the same giants and they said, you know, we, we see the same information, but we've come to the conclusion that we should certainly go up and take the land. Hashem will give the land into our hands. They looked at the same thing as the other ten spies. The difference being that they saw through the eyes of faith. And they rejoiced then in the obstacles set before them. Because they saw those as opportunities for God's glory and victory. People of faith are people of joy. We should be. Not a fake joy and not a giddy happiness, but a joyful confidence in God's presence. A person of faith is not rocked by fear. We were learning from the epistle of James last Tuesday. Not tossed back and forth by the wind like a wave in the sea. Instead, a person of faith has a quiet confidence in unflappableness an unflappable quality fueled by hidden joy, joy in the goodness of God. Therefore, a person of faith regards trial and difficulty, the apostles teach us, with joy and peace. He is content in scarcity and in abundance. He receives all things, whether good or bad, in confidence that God is good and all good things come from Him. That God is sufficient. He is enough. So the person of faith is content with what he already has. As the sages say, who is a rich man? He who is happy with what he already has. And hope is a big part of faith. It's almost a synonym because Faith, real faith, brings hope to otherwise hopeless situations. It's not a vain hope, like you might say, Oh, I hope nothing bad happens. <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm, I, of course, you hope nothing bad happens, but that's no guarantee, is it? Instead, the hope stirred up by faith rests on the joyful expectation of God's direct intervention in our lives. Faith believes in God, in his goodness, and faith believes that God will involve himself in a personal way in our lives when we pray in the merit and in the virtue of his Son. Therefore, faith can bring hope to any situation, because with God, all things are possible. So the believer in God always has a solid reason for hope. What kind of hope? Not a baseless hope that says, I hope it doesn't rain today. <laughs> or, I hope it stops raining soon. Rather, the hope by faith is the kind that looks and sees, yes, it is raining. But it says, nevertheless, 
I saw the forecast. And the forecast says that the rain is supposed to break by noon and the clouds are supposed to clear by 2 o'clock this afternoon. Therefore, I hope it's going to stop raining because I know that it will. It's not a baseless hope. It's based on solid information. Sometimes people think of faith as blind faith, like what you really need is blind faith. In other words, just believe in it and it's true. Biblical faith is never blind. Caleb and Joshua did not have blind faith. They had seeing faith. They saw giants. They didn't go into the land and cover their eyes and say, Hashem will surely give us this land. Don't show me any giants. They saw the giants. Blind faith is not interested in reality. Blind faith says, don't confuse me with facts. Blind faith says, nothing bad ever happens. Blind faith says, if I just believe hard enough, my prayers will be answered. Blind faith says, if God does not answer your prayers, it's because you aren't believing hard enough. You're not believing blind enough. Believe blinder and God will answer your prayers. But a seeing faith beholds the real world with all of its problems and deficiencies. It does not sugarcoat. It does not pretend that bad things are actually good. A seeing faith is not simply whistling in the dark. It is not merely the power of positive thinking or optimism. A seeing faith is not afraid to see evil and call it evil. It's not afraid to admit that there are real problems in the world and that human suffering is wrong and that we live in a broken and imperfect place. A seeing faith is not afraid to say bad things really do happen. Nevertheless, a seeing faith interprets the real world, good and bad, in the steadfast confidence in the power of God and that He is good And he does transcend all evil, all suffering, all obstacles. Seeing faith sees the problems, but it also sees the greatness of the Holy One, blessed be he, behind all of the problems. Why? Because seeing faith primarily knows God. This is what we are to boast in, that we know God. And when you know God, when you really know God, You have an unquenchable spirit of optimism, of confidence in God's ability to utterly transcend each and every obstacle. So, would you like a seeing faith? Would you like to have a spirit of optimism that can carry you through the darkest valleys? It's not just the power of positive thinking, and it's not just a personality thing like, oh, so-and-so is just always happy. It's faith. Faith offers real answers to life problems. Look, faith, it can fix your marriage. It can solve your financial problems. It can break your addictions. It can improve your health. It can get you a job. It can repair a broken relationship. All of this and more. The way of faith is the way of miracles. And the person of faith sees miracles and anticipates miracles every day and in everything. 
Even more important than all of that, real faith can carry you through the darkest times of your life when you do not see or receive miracles or answers to your prayers, when heaven is silent and divine intervention doesn't seem to be on the table. Real faith can deal with the realities of the real world because real faith is real, not self-manufactured, not a state of denial or an alternate reality. So real faith is there to give a person strength and hope and spiritual joy in the darkest passages of life. King David said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. King David did not pretend that there was no valley of the shadow of death. He did not say, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's actually a hilltop of joy and sunshine. He did not say, there is no evil. He said, I will fear no evil. Real faith does all of this. That goes into the cat. It's like, and it carries you through the valley of the shadow of death. Now how much would you pay? But wait, there's more. Real faith offers a person hope for life after death. How's that for spooky? Yeah, the resurrection, the messianic era, the world to come. How much would such a faith be worth? Our rabbi, Yeshua of Nazareth, said, let me tell you how much such a faith is worth. Once there is a man who hired himself out as a field hand out in a field and he's plowing when his plow struck a burial, a buried jar and he heard the pottery crack under the blade of the plow and he investigated and he found that the jar was full of gold coins from long ago, a forgotten treasure, maybe hidden in the field a century or more. What did he do? He covered the jar back up. He went home. He sold everything he had in order to raise enough money to go to the owner of that field and purchase that field. Why? Because then he owned the treasure in the field. So the reward the reward of owning that field far outweighed the price of investment. Ask yourself, how much would real faith like that be worth? What else could you possibly acquire in life that will last your whole life and beyond and into the next? If a a person acquires wealth, he loses it. As King Solomon says in the Proverbs, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be smart enough to desist. When your eyes fall on it, It's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Now you might be a good investor and say, yeah, I can see how other people waste their wealth, but not me. But even if it doesn't sprout wings and fly away, you know what they say? You can't take it with you. You know who they are? Paul. Paul's they. Because it was actually Paul who said, We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. 1 Timothy 6-7. I always wondered who they were. If a person acquires wealth, it sprouts wings and flies away. If a person acquires good health, 
he loses it eventually. If he acquires strength of body, he eventually becomes weak. If he acquires learning and scholarship, he eventually forgets his learning. If he acquires beauty, it eventually fades. A palace eventually crumbles. And all memory eventually vanishes. But there are three things a person can acquire which will go with him through his entire life and beyond. The Holy Apostle Paul said that in the end, only three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. Today, we're learning about faith and hope. Love is even greater than faith and hope. But faith and hope must come first because true godly love that Paul was talking about can only be built upon a foundation of faith and hope. Faith also requires fear. King David says, I will fear no evil. Real faith does not fear evil, but it does require fear. It requires fear of God. You might think that doesn't sound very psychologically, spiritually healthy, going through life being afraid of God. After all, our teacher, Yeshua of Nazareth, taught us to regard God as our loving Father. Love, you're not, you don't go through life being afraid of a, a loving Father, do you? Well, you know, loving fathers are, show their love by having a stern side as well, don't they? And a loving Father disciplines his children for bad behavior and rewards his children for good behavior. So the holy author of the book of Hebrews says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, one, and that he rewards those who seek him, too. And then there's an ellipsis there. And that he punishes those who resist him. So faith requires belief that, re- that God rewards those who seek and do good. Conversely, that God punishes those who resist him and do evil. That's part of faith. That's a foundation of faith. The Bible calls it the fear of the Lord. King Solomon says it's the very beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he says. And last, I think a few weeks ago, we were talking about the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who blessed his disciples saying, may your fear of God be at least as much as your fear of your fellow man. A few weeks ago, we were talking about this absolute belief that God is real, the God of the Bible, the one who rewards and punishes, and that all of our deeds are before his eyes at every moment, that he hears every word we speak in private, that he knows the curses we utter under our breath, that he sees what our eyes are set upon, and that he knows what lurks in the deepest parts of the heart of man. If we truly believe that he is present, it would make a difference in how we behave. Therefore, faith requires this fear of the Lord. As, as James says, he says, James, the brother of the master, he says, faith apart from works is useless. You show me your faith apart from works. I'll show you my faith by my works.
Because true faith begets obedience. A life of virtue and steadfastness. And from this perspective, faith is one side of the coin and faithfulness is the other side. Moreover, faith for us, disciples of Yeshua of Nazareth, is a weapon of war, a defensive shield in battle, in spiritual battle. Our Master Yeshua used to fight. He, he, he used to fight a spiritual enemy when he was among us. He would, he, the forces of darkness would, would encounter him, the legions of the evil one, and by faith he would cast out demons and he would silence evil spirits. The way of faith involves acknowledging such spiritual realities and, in fact, engaging with them in combat. Once a worried father brought his son to the disciples for healing, the boy was possessed by an evil spirit that caused seizures and sometimes threw this boy into the water and sometimes threw this boy into the fire as if to drown him or to burn him. And the disciples tried to cast out this evil spirit, but they could not cast out the evil spirit. And then our master Yeshua approached and the man said to him, if you can do, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And the master says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And so then the father cried out. He said, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. And by faith, Yeshua cast the evil spirit out of the boy. And the Gospels contain dozens of stories like this. By faith in God, his own faith in his father's power, and the faith of those he ministered among, he defeated the spiritual enemy. The Holy Apostle Paul tells us that we are at war with the same spiritual enemies. He said that we must put on the armor of God to stand fast against the devil. You know the passage. The armor of God, right? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And he said, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I am certain that Paul had in mind the great Roman shields of the legions, which the soldiers carried with them into battle, as big as a man, big rectangles that they could line up and lock one next to another, next to another, and form a complete wall and advance with a wall in front of them. And when that hail of flaming arrows came from the ramparts, arrows dipped in pitch and lit a, lit a blaze, a volley of arrows, a thousand thick. At times they said the sky would turn dark from the number of arrows in the sky. The Romans would flip those shields up over them and create a canopy, a, a ceiling over the top of the legions. This is how Paul sees it. This is how he understands a, the, the weapon of faith, the defense of faith. Faith is confidence in God on the field of battle. As King David said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, 
horn of my salvation, my stronghold, I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. You see, in apostolic theology, the devil is not a metaphor. He's not symbolic. He's real. He isn't just your evil inclination. Your evil inclination is his territory. But he is not just your evil inclination. He is a malevolent spiritual entity, the ruler of this present age, the birds of the air snatching away the word of truth from the rocky soil of human hearts. The wicked enemy who sows seeds in the field of righteousness. The destroyer, the cheat, the father of lies, the deceit, the treachery. The apostle Peter warns us saying, He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Therefore, resist him firm in your faith. The words of Peter. I want to close with a passage from the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. The only reason that you should be here today at Beth Emmanuel, and the only reason you should be a part of this community of faith is because you are seeking to be a person of faith, to grow in faith, seeking to live the life of faith and faithfulness. And if that is why you are here, then I encourage you to study with us in the book of faith and hope. The stories of the faithful of generations past. Here's a warning from the writer of the book of Hebrews, beginning in verse 35 of chapter 10. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come quickly and will not delay. But my righteous one, the tzaddik, will live by faith. The tzaddik will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul.